We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. As usual, don't forget to keep up to date with us by subscribing on your favourite podcast app and follow us via at novel underscore feelings on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, we're still on Twitter. (laughs) We are. (laughs) Um, I thought Twitter was going to be a bin fire, but it still seems to be going. But I mean, it is still a bin fire, but it's a slow burn. (laughs) The slow. It's just a bin fire that won't go out. Yeah. Um, Anyway, you can also follow our 2023 reading challenge on the story graph. We'll post a link to that in the description if you're interested or it's on our Instagram as well. Yeah. And today we are here for an interview. Slightly different. I think this one, I don't think we've done an interview with someone who wasn't an author of fiction novel. Mm, Yes, but the uh, opportunity came up and there was so much interesting content to talk about. Just so you all know, we do have a bunch of author interviews in the works, as well as our next review episode, which is Tiger Daughter, and will be coming up in just a couple of weeks' time. We will post our release date once I know when it's coming out, but um, mid-March, we are looking at mid-March. Yes, which is closer than we think. Uh, Yeah, time (laughs) is going forward at a terrifying speed. This year, just saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, today we are interviewing Dr. Jack Den Houting. Yeah, so just to tell you a bit about Jack, Dr. Jack Den Houting is a research psychologist and artistic activist working in pursuit of social justice. Jack is committed to creating real world change that benefits autistic people in the areas that matter most to the autistic community. Jack believes that autism research can be most meaningful and impactful when it is conducted by and with the people it is intended to serve, autistic people. Jack trained as a psychologist in Brisbane, Australia, where they also completed their PhD through Griffith University's Autism Centre of Excellence. Currently, Jack is a postdoctoral research fellow at Macquarie University in Sydney, where they investigate structural and systemic inequities in autism research. Prior to their research career, Jack gained 10 years experience as a psychologist in the criminal justice system. Thank you to the All About Women Festival at the Sydney Opera House for linking us together. Jack will be part of the Actually Autistic panel alongside Chloe Hayden and Grace Tame, and it will be moderated by Amy Tunick. If you're listening at the time of release, there's still time to check it out. Sunday, March 12, 2023 at 3 p.m. You just forget what year it was for a second. I know, though. yes. <laughs> I'm still in 2022. That is fair. Also, the panel will be live streamed. If you can't make it, just visit sydneyoperahouse.com. Now it's time to introduce our interview. And just a quick content note that this interview does cover some themes, including ableism and discrimination. So as usual, please listen at your own discretion. Let's get started. Hi, Jack. Thank you for your time today. Let's start off by talking about your career. Um, We are also psychologists and we would love to hear about your experience as a psychologist in the criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I guess, started out um, my career in um, 
the correction system in Queensland. Uh, so I actually worked in uh, one of the uh, correctional centres or prisons up in Queensland for about five years and was a provisional psychologist to start with and did sort of the supervision process that, that we have to do as psychologists, eventually became uh, a full registered psychologist. From there, I then um, moved on and worked for the Queensland Police for probably about another five years. Um, but a lot of that was part-time while I was doing my PhD. So really interesting places to work. Absolutely. (laughs) What drew you to working in that system? So I actually did my undergraduate degree, or it was a double degree, technically, um, in uh, psychology and criminology. As a teenager, you know, I had big dreams, as you do as a teenager. (laughs) Um, And I, uh, for some reason, imagined that I was going to be able to become a criminal profiler, which uh, I now know is not really a thing. <laughs> I, I don't think there are any criminal profilers in Australia. Um, maybe there's one or two. Uh, but, but yeah, outside of sort of the FBI and television, um, mm-hmm. that is not a viable career path. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that didn't work out quite as planned. But I was, you know, still really interested in that sort of intersection of, of criminology, psychology, um, I guess, understanding the, you know, how people's minds sort of work in ways that, that I guess, allow them or enable them to do things that, you know, beyond the norm and, and that society, um, yeah, for mm. often good reason, um, doesn't, I don't know, understand or endorse or, yeah, so that was sort of what led me down that path, I suppose. Yeah, mm. I, I did criminology in my first year of undergrad <laughs> and I went into it thinking it was going to be like Veronica Mars, um, just this like really cool, like intense class and very like interactive and like fascinating content and it was probably the most dry subject I took the entire <laughs> undergrad. <laughs> uh, but it was still obviously very interesting parts of it that I – I guess you know, from my experience, my expectations weren't met with my little exposure to criminology. But I, yeah, we would like to hear about your research career as well. Can you talk us through your area of research and perhaps some of your current research projects? My area of research, um, I guess, Broadly, in my mind, it's broadly. For most people, it would be very narrow. Um, but it, my, my area of research is, is autism. Within that, I guess I have a few different particular areas of interest. Um, my main research project at the moment is focused on sexuality, gender and sex education for autistic people. Um, exploring what people's experiences have been um, in in terms of the sex education that they've received or haven't received, and uh, with I guess with the end goal of um, hoping to improve that and uh, to develop uh, some resources or a, a program um, that is better suited to autistic people's needs in terms of sex education. 
My PhD project was was focused on anxiety in autistic people. Um, so I've done some work around anxiety. I've done a bit of work around, um, I guess, the concept of neurodiversity. And my most recent project prior to the sex education project was focused on um, participatory research. Um, so the idea of, of getting, I guess, the, the community involved in the research that's being done about them. So getting autistic people um, who don't necessarily have a research background involved in actually producing the research um, to, to make sure that that research is, you know, relevant and accessible and useful to the community that it's designed for. Yeah. Such an important area. Oh my goodness. So I, you know, myself, I work and research in the mental health field. Um, so specifically for uh, broadly describing the community as people who have complex mental health needs. My my PhD has involved a co-design study. So I've been learning a lot about participatory research and what that means and what that looks like on practical terms as well. And realizing how much research is done for people but not with people is a very eye-opening space mm. to be in and I imagine in your field of research maybe not as much participatory research as we would like to see is necessarily happening or has happened historically. Yeah absolutely it's it's something that's really quite new in the autism space it's um it's only I think really been on the radar Maybe the last 10 years, if I'm generous, mm-hmm. although there, there is one um, sort of research collective, autism research collective that's been around for quite a while, a group in the US called Aspire. But aside from them, um, yeah, there's really been um, almost no participatory research in the autism space um, up until the, the last few years. It's good that things are starting to change. But, yeah, well overdue, I think. Yeah, boggles the mind a little bit that it's only just started to happen recently. Mm. We understand that you began to identify as autistic at the age of 25. How would you describe your experience as an autistic advocate? It's a big question. It's it's a very big question. (laughs) Um, I guess for me, I was identified as autistic Um, in 2011 it wasn't until 2013 that I actually sort of started to venture into the autistic community I guess Um, and that was partly just because I I took some time to sort of I guess come to understand you know what autism was and what it meant for me and um, partly because I I didn't even necessarily realise that there was an autistic community or an advocacy community until sort of done a bit of that digging and, and, um, yeah, taken that time. Yeah, so it's been, gosh, it's been 10 years now that I've been been sort of involved in the space. And I think I probably had a lot to learn to start with and am glad I think that I realised that reasonably early on um, and and didn't go out with all guns blazing when in hindsight I really had no idea what I was doing. I spent a lot of time just reading and trying to sort of listen and learn from people who had come before me. Um, I think that's a really important thing to do when you're building on 
um, sort of an established history of advocacy. People can't see us, but we are all nodding along very <laughs> enthusiastically <laughs> at that statement. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, I was really lucky to be involved with a program called the Future Leaders Program, uh, which was run in 2013 alongside a one of the big autism conferences. Um, and that, for me, was sort of the launching point, I guess. Um, I was really lucky to meet um, some, some sort of key people um, who have been really great mentors and supports for me, um, and those networks um, proved to be really valuable then in terms of just helping me to find opportunities and um yeah helping to sort of build more connections and and get my work out there that's great Mm. yeah it sounds like it's definitely been a journey for you what are some of the key messages that you are aiming to communicate through your advocacy work it's another big question (laughs) (laughs) um and there are there are so many. I think it depends on the audience and it depends on where the audience is at, I guess, in terms of their understanding. With some audiences, the, the key message is, is going to be, you know, something as simple as autistic people are still people. You know, we still have human rights and we still deserve respect and yeah really basic things like that um with with other audiences it might be more complicated things like sort of debunking some of the myths around autism the myth that autistic people don't have empathy or um you know the myth that autistic people don't um don't want friends or you know want social interaction i guess the really key messages probably um, centre around the idea of neurodiversity, though, the neurodiversity paradigm and and that sort of idea that diversity is a very natural and normal part of humanity um, and that diversity in and of itself is a valuable thing. And the, the idea that autistic people aren't Um, you know, we are a disabled group, but we are not necessarily disabled as a result of being autistic. We're disabled um, as a result of being a marginalised group in society and existing in a world that doesn't meet our needs, that isn't designed for us. Is that the social model of disability? Am I getting that right? It it is. There are a few different models. So there's sort of the the social and the medical model are kind of the big two. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are are a whole bunch of sort of more recent models that I guess span the space in between them um, Mm -hmm. that, that sort of acknowledge that interaction between an individual's characteristics and the environment. Which I think is important to acknowledge as well um, that you know it's not necessarily just the environment or just the individual's characteristics or impairments, um, but but it's often it's sort of an inter interaction between those two factors that creates the disability. Yeah, yeah. I need to look into that uh, the models that are in between. <laughs> I feel it's like not something we're taught in psychology. I don't no. know why you think it would. Yeah, I I can say that 
it was only last year that I heard about the social model of disability, and it's been so useful in talking to because I do autism assessments with adults as well, and it's quite useful to have that language to talk about how you know this doesn't mean that you are broken in any way. Is this you know the environment's not set up to care for you or hasn't been your whole life, and that can be quite a game changer for some people. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of autistic people who do um, get the diagnosis or come to identify as autistic late in life, they, you know, they do come into it with that sort of feeling of I'm broken, there's something wrong with me, I'm a failure. Um, you know, that's certainly, you know, I know I, I um, had a lot of those sort of thoughts before I found out that I was autistic. Um, yeah, and I think I think having that understanding that, no, it's not you, mm-hmm. it's your needs are different to the majority of other people and those needs haven't been met um, and, and that's why you've struggled, not because you're, you know, a useless mm-hmm. human but because you haven't had what you've needed for most of your life um, yeah. and nobody can be expected to thrive if they haven't had their basic needs sort of understood or or acknowledged and I think it's important too when we when we sort of talk about like the social model of disability and and talk about this idea of the environment um not not accommodating autistic needs I I think it's really important to to note that the environment doesn't just refer to the physical environment um because I think people often sort of sort of assume oh I'll just you know, dim the lights and turn Mm. the music off and it'll be fine. Um, But the environment is much broader than that. And and one of the biggest barriers that a lot of autistic people face is actually um, other people's attitudes. Um, And that's that's a a part of the environment, you know, the emotional environment, the the, the attitudes and and behaviour of other people around you is is a really big factor in... um, I guess, determining how accessible things are and how understood and accepted you feel and and all of that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, environment is um, sounds very simple, but it's actually quite sort of complex and nuanced when you really get into it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the people I've worked with said something along the line of, you know, the problem is not that I'm autistic. The problem is other people's response to my autism. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. In 2019, you did a TED Talk called Why Everything You Know About Autism Is Wrong and it went viral and it has attracted more than a million views on YouTube. You might get a few more as I send this video to a couple of people. <laughs> um, has life changed for you at all since this video was released? Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> I I definitely did not expect the um, the TED Talk to get the response that it has. Um, it's been incredible, um, and I'm thrilled that that you know that message has got gotten out there and been seen and heard by so many people. Um, in terms of life changing, I think, um, in, in sort of a broad sense, 
you know, I, I still work at the same place. I still do more or less the same job, but it, it hasn't changed in, in that um, sort of broader sense. Um, but definitely um, something I, I noticed when the talk started getting some traction was just the the sort of barrage of emails <laughs> that, that started coming in um, and um, yeah, I, I definitely um, receive a lot of emails from people who have seen the talk, um, which is, I mean, it's lovely. A lot of the time, you know, it's people just sort of writing to, to say thank you or share a bit of their story with me, which is, yeah, it's lovely and I really appreciate it. Um, sometimes it's people seeking advice and unfortunately I don't have the capacity to help all those people um, and that's really hard to know that people are sort of contacting me because they need help and, and I'm just not in a position um, to be able to respond to that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to, to know that something that I've done has reached that many people. Um, and I, I did actually put together a website after <laughs> sort of in response to all of the, the emails. I thought, you know, if I, I can't help all these people myself, but at least, you know, I'll put together a website, I'll put some links in there, I'll put some of my work up, um, and hopefully people might find the website instead mm-hmm. of my email address. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, go there and, and hopefully find some some help good idea to set that up I think. <laughs> and can I say I had a look at I almost never look at YouTube comments but I did for this video and they are so positive and so grateful for the video too and yeah I just I'm used to YouTube comments being a mixed bag to put it politely <laughs> like sometimes there's a few nice ones but the ones attached to your video so many people have found a sense of validation from that video which I think is really lovely to see um in your talk you spoke about how we need paradigm shift when it comes to our understanding about autism even though it's only been uh four years since the talk was released but from your perspective do you think the shift is happening whether this might be in academia or society in general I think it is I definitely don't think I can take credit for that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, um, my, my talk happened four years ago, um, but the, the autistic advocacy movement and the neurodiversity movement has been around for much longer than that. Some of the earliest autistic advocates that, that we sort of, I guess, have, have record of as being um, aligned with the neurodiversity movement um, you know, they were they were doing work back in the early 90s. Um, so it, it's been, um, I guess there's been advocacy in the space. There's been people pushing for this paradigm shift um, for, what's that, 30 years or so? Yeah, so I, I do think it's happening. I think it's happening slowly. Um, I think it has definitely picked up speed in say the last 10 years or so um mm. and and maybe maybe even less maybe maybe the last five years or so um I certainly have noticed that I am starting to see um you know the the word neurodiversity um just entering the mainstream a lot more um mm-hmm. I 
I was watching an episode of Orange is the New Black um, at, at one point, and one of the characters sort of said, oh, that's where our neurodiverse inmates work. Oh, <laughs> and, cool. And I thought, amazing, you're, you're using neurodiversity, you've used it wrong, that's grammatically <laughs> incorrect, but I'm going to let it slide. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, um, I think it's, it's definitely getting more of that mainstream attention, um, which is good. And I think the, um, the general sort of ethos, um, I guess, of, of what advocates um, have been pushing for is reaching the mainstream. I think a little bit of the nuance often sort of gets um, lost along the way, mm-hmm. um, which I think I don't think that's unique to, to autism. I think that's something that tends to happen, you know, when, when things become mainstream, they get condensed down into the sort of nice little sound bites and chunks and, and whatever we can absorb with our 30-second TikTok memories. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a bit of the nuance is lacking. But um, it's, I think it's, it's definitely, um, there's definitely progress and I am hopeful that it will keep happening, keep moving in the right direction. Yeah. So you mentioned about the barrage of emails that you got and in putting together a website. Um, how do you balance sharing your own lived experience publicly while maintaining your privacy as well? Sharing my own lived experience publicly that this is I think this is one of the um one of the areas where the sort of reading and research that I did early on in my advocacy career um served me quite well um because in some of the things that I read I came across a term um that was I believe it was coined by one of the early sort of autistic advocates that may or may not be accurate. I don't know, but that's, <laughs> I'm going with that. I'm running mm-hmm. with that. Um, and he, he came up with this term, the, the self-narrating zoo exhibit, which was essentially a way of describing um, some of the very early efforts at autistic advocacy that we see still today, but to a lesser extent, which was essentially just sort of autistic people being put on display like a zoo exhibit, um, getting up, you know, sharing very intimate personal details of their lives for the benefit of the audience, um, professionals or parents of autistic children or whoever it may be, um, with, with really no reciprocity. Um, in that, um, no real benefit for the autistic person, um, and and sort of creating a real power imbalance as well. And so that was something I was quite wary of. I think when I started my sort of advocacy journey was um, I, you know, I I, I want to sort of share my experience to be able to help people, but I don't want to become a self narrating zoo exhibit. Um, I don't want to be, you know, giving up my power to people who may or may not use that in the the best interests of whoever um, who may or may not sort of acknowledge or appreciate what I am giving them. I have, I guess, my own sort of 
almost an internal catalogue, I suppose, of, of where my boundaries are and, you know, what I will and won't share, um, what I am comfortable talking about and, and what I won't sort of touch on publicly. And, and that, you know, that changes from time to time as I grow and develop as a person. I, you know, might be more comfortable talking about some things and, and less comfortable talking about other things. Um, yeah, but I think it's it's an important thing to do if you're going to be um, doing activism or, or advocacy and sharing your own experience is, is to go into it with a clear idea of where those boundaries are. I know for me personally, if I didn't have that, I am someone who is more likely to just go with the flow and answer the question and then really regret it later. Yeah, I've kind of I've heard of the concept of a vulnerability hangover before, which I really like. So, you know, when somebody shares something really difficult or really personal about themselves and then feels this emotional response to that in the hours or days afterwards as a result and that's usually a sign that maybe things may have gone a little bit too far past that boundary yeah I'm also quite mindful of I don't know if you're um, familiar with Stella Young um yeah 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 she um she has a fabulous TED talk where and and in that she talks about the idea of inspiration porn um and so that's another sort of um I guess concept that I'm I'm quite mindful of is um, you know if I'm if I am sharing my experience I don't want it to be inspiration porn I don't want it someone sitting there listening to my story and thinking about how wonderful and inspirational I am because mm-hmm. I am a disabled person who is managing to yeah like stay alive um, if they're going to be inspired I want them to be inspired because I've done something that's actually inspiring. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, uh, the professional element is interesting too because, um, of course, with your research focusing around autism, um, you know, academia is a space where people often uh, you know, have a very professional kind of boundaries and might not be encouraged to share their own opinions and views and everything all that much of the time. I was wondering if you could tell us about your experiences as an autistic advocate uh, specifically within academia and what that has been like for you. I think um, I have probably been fairly lucky um, in my experiences of academia in that I haven't encountered as as many of the challenges, I think, um, as I know that some other um, openly autistic academics in the space have come across. Um, I think that's partly um, due to being based in Australia. Um, I think we have a fairly progressive um, sort of little community of autism researchers in Australia, which is great. Um, I think it's partly the specific people that I've um, had the opportunity to work with as well. There's an article from a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Monique Botha, and they have written, it's this. It's an amazing piece. It's one of my favourite academic articles. Um, Monique is also an autistic academic who works in autism research. Um, and and the, 
the piece they've written is a um, an autoethnography, um, essentially, where they describe their own experience of being an autistic academic in autism research. And I really like it. Really resonated with that on a deep level. It it sort of it explores the challenges, not just. Um, that you might encounter from sort of peers or colleagues questioning, you know, are you objective enough? You're too emotionally involved, all of that sort of thing, which is only even vaguely uh, relevant if you're doing quantitative research anyway. Mm. (laughs) Qualitative research is all about, you know, positionality and reflexivity and all of that sort of thing. Um, But... On top of that, the the sort of almost trauma, I suppose, of constantly having to engage with this material that is written about your community um, and often written in just really quite awful ways. Um, the, you know, autism research historically has done some fairly horrific things to autistic people. Um, but even some of the research that's published today is, um, you know, maybe not as awful as it used to be, but definitely not designed with autistic people as readers in mind. Um, and so it's, it, it is really challenging to, um, to sort of constantly be exposing yourself um, to these kinds of ideas about your community and about yourself and, and having to, I guess, engage with that in a professional way and not let it get to you too much. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's not an easy space to work in as an autistic person. Um, and I, um, it's one of the reasons I think why I appreciate when I do hear from people um, who, you know, sort of, send through positive feedback about um, the TED Talk because it's, you know, sometimes getting one of those emails after I've just read a horrific (laughs) journal article Mm. um, is sort of that little bit of motivation of, I you know, people do actually appreciate what I do and, you know, I will push through and keep going and hopefully create some benefit in people's lives and it will be worth it in the long run or in the grand scheme of things yeah and hopefully that means fewer terrible articles will be published down the track because of this work as well yeah I mean I think things are improving Mm. Um, I think there's still plenty of research published that um, that I would not recommend reading (laughs) as an autistic person but the proportion that is, um, you know, written in sort of a, a more sensitive way, a more accepting and, and positive way, um, that proportion is, is growing. It's mm-hmm. so small, um, but, yeah, it's growing. So things are going in the right direction. Yeah. From academia to popular culture, mm-hmm. uh, our podcast focuses on media representations, specifically books. What would you like to see improve when it comes to media representation of autism? I am definitely a uh, Netflix binger. Um, and, um, yeah, it's. I think it's another space where there's definitely improvement happening. Um, and I think that's 
not limited to to autism. It's you know we can see it in um, in representation across a lot of different marginalized communities, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, that that there's more sort of authentic and and um, real representation happening. I think you know there's we've we've had for. A, Quite a while we've had some of the tropes like Sheldon Cooper and, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Rain Man, mm-hmm. um, always white, always male, um, always sort of from the same uh, cultural backgrounds um, and, and usually, you know, sort of good at maths or science or computers or, you know, it's, it's that autism stereotype that everyone is familiar with. Um, so I've actually been really... Um, really excited to see um, some of the content that's coming out in the last few years that has had the genuine autistic involvement um, in the making of the content. Um, So I loved um, Everything's Going to Be Okay, which was Josh Thomas's um, TV series um, with Kayla Cromer. I want to say is the name of the autistic actress who who plays um, the autistic character in that series. I loved that one. It was just so great to see such an authentic representation of autism in a TV show. Um, You know, even though her experience was different to my experience, there were just the little subtle things that, I picked up one as an autistic person that a non-autistic person probably wouldn't even notice. Um, and I think that's the sort of quality that you get when um, when representation is done right and done with the involvement of um, people from the community. You know, that's about the third or the fourth recommendation I've heard for that show in the last maybe two weeks, which I think really <laughs> says to me that I need to watch it. I did watch um, Josh Thomas's other show, Please Like Me, which I really loved. So, uh, you know, mm. all, all positives I'm hearing, I definitely need to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very different, like, storyline and, and, and focus. But, yeah, it's, it's a, I really loved it. It was a great show. I loved Please Like Me as well. Um, love a bit of Hannah Gadsby. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Autistic and queer, you can't not love Hannah Gadsby. Um, yeah, so um, definitely recommend that one. I, I actually watched also The New Heartbreak High not long ago. It's um, so good. <laughs> it, it was really good. I really, you know, loved, um, again, seeing that autistic representation and I think it was done in a way where um, it was sort of, there was a little bit of an educational element built in as well, um, but not done in kind of an in-your-face, like, after-school special, we're going to sit down and teach you about autism way. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it was, it was a good balance of sort of teaching people without being preachy. And, again, played by an autistic actress. You know, I think autism is really difficult to play well if you're not autistic. So it's great to see, you know, the the genuine portrayals by autistic people, but also autistic people actually getting these opportunities um, to to have, you know, exposure in mainstream media as well. Yeah, yeah. I watched The Good Doctor, so I I know what you mean about like how <laughs> cringy it can be when someone's trying to portray 
autism in that very stereotypical way as well. I haven't actually been able to bring myself to watch more than just like the ads. Yeah. Good doctor. I don't recommend it. Yeah. It's painful to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that what those recommendations tell me is that I've got a bit of catching up to do with my Netflix shows. <laughs> um, you are part of the All About Women Festival as a panelist on the Actually Autistic panel. Can you tell us what you look forward to the most about the panel or the, you know, the festival in general? Yes, I am super excited um, to be part of the, the festival, part of this panel. Um, I will be on the panel um, with, I'm so excited, uh, with, I'll be on the panel with Grace Tame and Chloe Hayden. Um, it's a good panel. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, particularly having only just watched Heartbreak High not that long ago, you know, to, to get to sit down and have a chat to Kuni herself, um, and of course Grace Tame, who is just such a powerful, powerful woman. Mm. Um, so I'm really looking forward to meeting them. Um, and of course, also um, the panel will be moderated by um, Amy Tunick who is actually a colleague of mine um, and a um, another just really fierce, strong um, First Nations woman. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to just sitting down and having a chat with, with the panellists. I think it's going to be um, a really interesting discussion. Um, but aside from that, because, <laughs> of course, I'm looking forward to my own panel, There's some really great um, sessions that are going to be happening during the festival. There's a few other panels that I'm uh, that I'm also really really interested to um, to hopefully um, have a chance to to go along and listen to Um, a panel. There's a panel called I think um, Who is Feminism for? Mm. That's going to be discussing um, sort of some of the nuance around inclusion of different minority identities within feminism, um, which is one that I'm really interested personally because I don't identify as a woman. I'm non-binary. Um, so for me, the idea of being part of an all about women festival is is a little bit odd. Um, I was assured that it's that it's an inclusive festival. Um, yeah, but I'm really interested to sort of hear those panelists take on the idea of feminism as, as an intersectional sort of movement. There's a panel on on justice, um, which I'm also really interested in with my sort of criminal justice background that will be sort of looking at um, the the ways that uh, violence against women and, and I think with a focus on sexual violence mm. is sort of dealt with in, in the justice system and and I guess some of the barriers and failings of the system for, you know, victims and survivors. So that I think will be probably a really difficult panel um, but yeah. also a really interesting discussion. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, I saw there's a panel on body positivity, um, but specifically the, the bodies that have been left behind by the movement. Mm. Um, which I, I really hope they touch on, you know, disabled bodies um, as, as a disability advocate. Um, yeah, so just heaps of really interesting panels that, um, that I feel like um, I can sort of really relate to personally and as an activist and, and an advocate. Um, and I think there's 
probably going to be something for for everyone. There's you know mm-hmm. clay clay workshops and craft workshops and things as mm-hmm. well. So yeah, I think it'll be a really great festival. Amazing. Um, we are sadly in Victoria and cannot make it to Sydney, but I know I'm going to be tuning in on some of the live streams, uh, which I'm really excited to do as well. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what, Jack? I think that was our last question for today. So we might actually wrap things up there. Thank you so much for such an interesting discussion. I definitely learned something and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you. And that wraps up our interview. Now, we will quickly mention what is going on on the blog post on our website to link in with this episode. So briefly, just some of the resources that we will link to include Jack's social media and their website, which uh, for those listening is www.jackademic.com, which is a great URL, by the way. Uh, We'll also post links to where you can find out more about some of Jack's research, uh, their TED Talk as well, Mm -hmm. and some of the TV shows that Jack recommended. I am very biased towards Heartbreak High, of course, so I'm just (laughs) going to throw in my own extra recommendation there. Mm. Awesome. And that wraps us up for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you like us, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to find us on NovelFeelings.com or on Instagram, Twitter, The Storygraph and Goodreads, all via at Novel underscore Feelings. You can technically find me on Bookstagram at Paved with Books with an extra S. I currently don't have a bookshelf, so there's no space to take pretty photos and because my floor <laughs> is covered with books so but you are eventually going to get a really epic new bookshelf of course eventually yes yes an ikea Can't trip wait. an ikea trip is in the calendar <laughs> awesome all right thank you so much to everybody who listened and tuned in and a big thank you once again to jack for this awesome interview bye everybody see ya